Today, we're speaking to Tobias Carlisle, Portfolio Managers at Acquirers Fund. Tobias, so great to have you on Forward Guidance. Hi, Jack. Good to see you again. Great to see you. Tobias, you are a connoisseur of value investing. It's something of a lost art, but you're very quantitative and you've elevated it to a very rigorous style. So I want to uh, have you on here. I'm so glad that you're here because we can get into uh, value investing. What is value investing? Why did it overperform for something like a century? And why has it had you know, the underperformance uh, over the past decade that has just taken so many people by surprise. So I'm going to start by asking, what is value investing? What does it mean to you? And then what's your background? How did you get involved in it? Well, value investing is the idea that you buy something for less than it's worth. So you can examine the fundamentals of a business and the company, the structure that owns the business. And there's sometimes there's value in the structure in the sense that it might be net cash. It owns some assets. Sometimes there's no value in the structure. Sometimes it's net debt. And we're purely looking at the value of the business. And then the business is a is a separate sort of entity in and of itself that we can value. And the way that we value a business is we look at the cash flows that it generates from here until the end of time, discounted back to today with some sort of level of certainty or uncertainty about those cash flows, interest rates and so on. So there's a few moving parts to the valuation. So the, the kind of value investing that I practice, just, just so it's dis distinguished between, it is a reasonably broad church. There's sort of at, at one end, there's a liquidation style value where people are looking at that's entirely balance sheet value with a very conservative estimate of what the assets are worth in a liquidation that those opportunities don't come around very often. They're rare and increasingly rare in, in this market because screening so much better, but they still exist. And then at the other end, you might be valuing only the business and only its future prospects. You know, it might not be earning anything today. It might not be generating any cash flows, it might be cash flow negative today, but you can see it has a high rate of growth and a path to generating cash flows in the distant future come up with some estimate for what that value might be and discount that back to today and try and buy at a discount. They're both value investing. It's just that one is much more conservative than the other. I think that over the last um, 10 years in particular, the, the growthier style has been the, the, the one that's sort of come to the forefront and the one that has performed the best, the more conservative style has done poorly and i think a lot of the reason for that is we've just been in a very long bull market and um there hasn't been a lot of fear because the way that value tends to work is it does tend to underperform when the market is very bullish it's just that it doesn't lose as much money when the market goes down and that does very well in a recovery as well so if you can think about that sort of three or four very simple stages of a cycle where there might be a crash and a recovery and then the, the intermediate part where it transitions from recovery to to a bull market and then there might be at the end of that is the very um speculative kind of frenzy and that's when value is going to do worst and so if you look at what's happened over the last period of time i think it's from a 2009 low to 2021 we've become increasingly overvalued through that period now we can talk about the various metrics of that and why that might be the case in a moment but i think it's fair to say that we're 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 a long way into a very long bull market and so I, it's not a surprise to me that value underperforms but value in particular in this cycle has underperformed because the prior cycle value did so well which was funnily enough it did well because the cycle before that, which was the sort of dot-com boom, late 1990s, it trailed. And the, the, the flood of money into the more speculative stocks on the market just means that there's not as much money around for the, for the value style stocks. And so in the dot-com 1.0 boom, the value stocks, traditionally, you, you have to do a little bit of discounting. There's a... Um, you know, there's some handicapping going on. You, you're not getting as good. The, the business isn't as good. The balance sheet isn't as good, but it's it's sold off too much. 
relative to what it can generate. And so value investors are typically hunting around in that it's not the most popular stock, but its prospects are still pretty good given where the price is. And so that's how it generates returns. And um, in the early 2000s, they were paradoxically the very best stocks, the highest, re the highest returns on equity, highest returns on assets were in the value stocks, which were also very cheap. And so value from early 2000 to sort of 2010 really had this monster run uh, massively outperforming. And so between 2010 and 2015, value itself got overvalued. And in 2015, the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued was as tight as it has ever been. There was no advantage to owning uh, the, the ugliest stocks. You, there was, you didn't have to pay up at all to get higher returns on invested capital, better performance. And so that was a good time to transition into the growthier, the better issues. I didn't do it. I completely missed the opportunity. didn't understand it at the time, but I've spent some time in the penalty box over the last <laughs> sort of five or six years trying to figure out what went wrong. And I think that that's, that's one of the reasons, um, that's one of the reasons why. So value's done poorly, however you measure it over the last sort of five or six years, um, other than the very growthy style of value, which seems to have done pretty well. And that's where we find ourselves today, where value is sort of in the deepest, um, longest period of underperformance. So I've got some data that goes back 200 years, as funny as that sort of sounds. Uh, very clever gentleman by the name of Mikhail Samanov has stitched together these three data sets that include the ones that everybody's familiar with, like the, uh, f the French data set which runs from 1926 to, to, to date. And then there's a Cowles Commission where uh, this gentleman was trying to figure out, um, you know, whether uh, there was any skill in stock picking. And so he had these punch cards and he put all of these newspaper, newsletter writers' recommendations into these punch cards and tracked the performance of it. He, he concluded that there was no skill, but Benjamin Graham got access to that data set and he went back and he had a look. I think he was just looking at price to book value as a, how that performed. And he found that that would have generated about just being long, the cheapest stocks generated about 15% a year. And then there's some other deeper history where these um, academics have gone back and looked at the financial reporting from like 1825, which is that's like Commodore Vanderbilt and steamships, just to give you the context of what's going like the, the telegraph doesn't get invented until 1844. So this wow. is pre-telegraph. And the, the way that they were assessing it was, was dividend information. That's all you could get. So it's like a dividend yield. The, the, the higher the dividend yield, the more likely it is a value stock as they were defining it. And if you look over that 200 year period, there have been these three monster underperformances. And one of them is right at the very beginning in that uh, the first information technology revolution in 1844, which was the, the, the telegraph was the, was the technology of the day. And then um, there's this thing called the, it, it was previously called the Great Depression. And now we call it the Long Depression because we've had a Great Depression, a greater depression since then. And that was about 1904. And then to date, and so the, the last update on that data was a little bit, was like a year or so ago. And so at the time it was showing, it was like a 59% underperformance for value. Over how long a period, Tobias? 10 or 15 years, but it cuts off before we actually got to the bottom. So it's likely that this is the worst performance of value ever measured by price to book value, which we can, we, we can debate that later about whether that's an appropriate measure or not. But basically what's happened, we have to shift away from that sort of that data to look at the FAMA French data, which is updated, or the French data, which is updated more regularly. And that does seem to have bottomed in about September last year and bounced, but then we've also had this period of pullback. So that's sort of where we find ourselves now. Value to me looks very cheap. The spread is very, very wide. The underperformance is, is, is enormous. And so I think the prospects for value are good, um, but I, I can't tell you when and I don't know. So Tobias, I'll just break down that high level analysis you gave. Tell me whether this is mostly right. Um, value versus growth. Some companies are fast growing and have high quality businesses. Others are slow growing or shrinking businesses and they have low quality businesses. But the ones that are high quality and fast growing are priced as such. And those are growth stocks. You are looking at the passed over stocks. You know, so let's say there could be a coal company that's making $100 million a year, but they're 
market capitalization is only $600 billion a year. So their price to earnings is, is six, whereas there could be a chip maker that makes $100 million a year, but their market capitalization is $100 billion a year because they're such a higher quality businesses. So you're looking at those overlooked businesses. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the sort of businesses that are value and, and how you avoid what is known as a value trap when it's cheap because there's a reason it's cheap. So the, the distinction between value and growth, anybody will tell you that they're essentially the same thing. It's a continuum. They'll say it's joined at the hip. And, and what they mean is that value as measured by a multiple can be misleading. There are some companies, as you point out, a coal miner or any kind of, you know, basic material is a in the basic material sector, they tend to be lower quality businesses because they, they have no control, have no pricing control over what they sell. They're subject to what the market does. It's an asset intensive, capital intensive business to pull stuff out of the ground and then you don't know what you're going to get for it. And when the cycle turns for these things, their margins don't go up because their input costs, it, it, co it just costs more money to get it out of the ground. It becomes more competitive because previous mines that might be marginal prospects become, you know, when the price goes up higher, they become all of a sudden you can make money out of it. They'll, they'll uh, take that mine out of mothballs and then they'll, they'll be competing alongside the, the, the other miners who, who, who've been in through the long haul. And then you compare that with a company that has some real pricing power in its business. And Nvidia might be a good example of that, or, you know, Google or something like that, where they have massive returns on invested capital and they really don't, see much of the business cycle because they're just growing so fast that every year they're bigger and bigger. So that's, that, that's sort of reasonably good examples. And it's the, it's the pricing power that, that should dictate it. Having said that, for whatever reason, the market does sometimes get these things wrong. And I'm not necessarily trying to buy cyclicals, um, you know, before they explode. Although I, I, I wouldn't not buy a cyclical if it was cheap enough on a, on a sort of earnings power basis on an average earnings power basis. I might buy a cyclical. It just, it would, it would need to meet those other criteria. What I'm trying to buy is on, in a very simple terms, I'm trying to buy cash flows out as far as I can see growing cash flows where the management team is going to allow you as a shareholder to participate alongside the management team normally. And so what, what the, the way that that would happen is that they would buy back some stock or, or they do things that are beneficial to shareholders rather than just increasing salaries or buying companies and over, you know, buying other competitors and overpaying for those competitors because it's to their benefit to run a bigger company. They get a bigger salary, more stock options, which are, um, you know, a, a way for them to sort of participate in an asymmetric fashion that they only care about the upside, not the downside. So what, I, what I'm trying to do is really find something that is less risky in terms of its ability to generate those cash flows because the management team will pay attention to it and you'll buy them cheaply. And I don't really care which sector or which industry they come from, provided that the business possesses those characteristics. Tobias, so many, you know, we're living in a time of record valuations, not just for growth stocks, but for stocks across the board. The types of stocks where you do, do see value, deep value, which is a term we can get into, why do you think they are passed over? What are most investors missing that, that your algorithms catch? Well, this market is a good example of, of, of what I think happens sometimes. So. That we just have these very long cycles and it's hard to look at the market and, and ignore what has attracted attention over the last five or six years. And it's been uh, very high rates of growth. And these businesses that do seem to have some interesting network effects where Google's got this network effect where the search gets better. It's going to be very hard to compete with Google on search. It's hard to compete with them in email. It's hard to, there's a whole, YouTube's probably hard, impossible to compete with. So Google's a very, very good business and, and, and Amazon is the same kind of, Amazon's a different business. It's not as, probably not as good a business as Google is, but it's still as, you know, it's the default search for shopping for most stuff for most people. So the, the, everybody's looking for the next one of those things. And so they're looking for technology, online type stocks, and they're looking for, for the evidence that they would seek in something that is new that has come to market or that has been around for a very short period of time is very high rates of growth in their revenues and 
anything that doesn't then possess those very high rates of growth can sort of be forgotten about and left behind. The very high rates of growth is not my definition of a good company. My definition of a good company is very high returns on invested capital and sustainable high returns on invested capital. And the reason that that's important is that basically the company invests in itself at its own book value and then it gets a return on that investment. So if you can invest at 50, if you get a 50% return on equity, every dollar that you put into the business gives you back 50 cents. That's a very, very good business. Another one, and so the S&P 500 average return on equity is about 13.3%. So below that 13.3%, they're less good businesses and they should trade at a discount to to their assets. And that's that's that that tends to be what happens Although there are many examples of these very high return businesses that have been around for a very long time, they don't grow so fast on a revenue basis, but the bottom line grows very quickly because, and what flows to the shareholders grows very quickly because they tend to use those cash flows to buy back stock or to make acquisitions of, you know, they make good acquisitions. And so that's the sort of thing that I'm looking for where from top to bottom, it's, it's, it's appropriately managed. You don't you want something to grow as fast as it as it can, as it should, but you don't necessarily want it to grow where the growth destroys value. So you want them to be not overpaying for acquisitions is a great example. So, and that's hard to do because the industries get cheap and expensive at the same time. Everything in the industry gets expensive. And then to buy something in the industry, you have to pay a very high price. So the better, you know, ideally you want the management team buying their competitors one customer at a time and making money when they do it. So that's, I think that's where there's a little disconnect in this market that everybody's focused on growth. And the reason to, it's easy to understand why you can look at what has worked over the last three or five years. It's purely growth. Any other uh, factor just hasn't worked as well, but it's a little, it's, it's not, it's, it's resulted in these most, these very growthy companies being extremely expensive. And I think it'll be difficult for them to generate any return um, over the next decade. Whereas at the other end of the market, the value stuff where I'm trying to hunt, these are now better quality businesses than the growthiest stuff. We're in that same scenario we're in in the early 1990s where you're gonna get very high returns on invested capital in companies that are very cheap. They don't need any multiple re-rating. This is the thing that, that the criticism of, of my style of value is that it's a multiple re-rating business that the mean reversion means that it has to be a sub market multiple going back to a market multiple. It's unnecessary at the moment with the current crop. And, and for a long time, that has been the case that through the yield, either through shareholder yield, through dividends or buybacks, plus the incremental growth of what just reinvesting in those businesses, they're going to generate market beating returns without any multiple re-rating. And I think that there's, if that starts happening and the market wakes up to it, then of course you'll get the multiple re-rating as well. And that'll just be the icing on the cake, but it's unnecessary. The cake is already baked and it's got, it's got dividend yield and incremental growth in it that will, will outperform. Tobias, what do you think uh, has been the proximate cause or causes of the underperformance of value over the past five uh, to 10 years? Value was remarkably uh, predictable and consistent in in delivering alpha against the growth of stocks you know against history like the the, the telegram didn't perform well the uh, railroad airlines these were the growth industries of yesteryear and investors did much better in, in buying value stocks the sort of graham and dodd analysis why has the past decade been different is it low interest rates low inflation low growth central bank easing you know what 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 um, do you think made this cocktail of, of value and a performance, which is not normal? It's multifactorial. Part of it is the sector composition of value, just holding cyclical financials, um, basic materials, energy in a period of time when those sectors haven't worked very well. And that's, a, that's because they tend to be, they screen better on a price to book basis not that anybody's using price to book as a value metric but it just there's a lot to recommend it as a value metric because it's so stable over quarter to quarter which is why it tends to get used by the academics um so there's that there's also as i was discussing earlier there was that late 1990s underperformance and then that had that massive boom in the 2000s where it and it just got too expensive between 2010 and 2015 and that 
um, has led to, I think Cliff Asness said there was, over that decade, there were about eight years of appropriate punishment to value where it was too expensive and it needed to get back to that, um, it needed to get cheaper and it, and it did. And then over the last two or three years, it has now been punished um, beyond that where now the opportunity looks really, really good and the spread is very, very wide. So th there's a lot going on. And, th and then you've just got investor psychology over this. The last little tail, the last part of it has been, you know, now we have this expectation that if you ask any investor what they think of value, that, that it's an absolute laughing stock at the moment. Like what? Like what? It's just, just in the sense that it's a, the, the, the idea that you're trying to buy, you know, the, it's an old fashioned, it's always an old, I should say it's always regarded as an old fashioned sort of approach to investing. And it's a risk first approach to investing. You, you really worried about the return of your capital be, before you worried about the return on your capital. And that's been the wrong approach for the last decade because we're at all time highs where we're so stretched now. Um, any sort of hedging or risk management or carrying cash that's all been the wrong thing to do at every stage and every bull market looks exactly the same if any sort of anytime you take your chips off the table it's the wrong time to do it unless you get very lucky with the timing at the very end so value investors do it in an ad hoc fashion you buy something undervalued and you sell it when it reaches fair value but we're in an unusual market which is an extremely bifurcated market where the most expensive stuff is just it can't, it just can't generate returns at this level over a decade. There can be, it can run up more from here. It's just, it's not, the, the returns won't be sustainable. It must give them back. And then value at the other end is, you know, priced to generate pretty good returns, even though the market itself is expensive. Again, it's a composition problem with the market where the top names in this Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, um, Google, they're, they're all pretty, they're great businesses. They're, they're expensive, but I wouldn't say that they're, um, they're not silly expensive. It's just that, you know, and part of the problem, as you alluded to before, is it's a, it's an interest rate environment where interest rates have been falling. And so if you, if you have something that's, that's like a marginal prospect because it's, it's earning say just a bit, you know, are you going to put the money into the 10 year or are you going to put the money into Microsoft? Microsoft is a growing yield at, a 3% free cash flow yield or, or roughly wherever it is now where you can look at the, the 10 years at 1.5%. So you get two times the free cash flow yield out of Microsoft and it's growing. We don't know what happens to the 10 year from here. It could go negative, who knows? Could go positive to, could go back to its long run mean at 6% and then Microsoft won't look cheap at 3%. But it's, it, it is that interest rate and inflation sector composition overvaluation all of those things are the reason why value has underperformed but it's it, it did seem to bottom in september last year and so i think it's i think it's back but although you know having said that we've we ran up until sort of february april and now we're, we're sort of slumping back to close to the the spread is as close to being as wide as it was before the uh before the turn last year yeah, T Tobias, you know, you're a very quantitative uh, investor, so I'm, I'm sure you've done some work on this. What is the relationship between interest rates and value, uh, between uh, inflation and the spread between growth and value? You said we were at record uh, widespread between growth and value last summer. It narrowed slightly um, till February, but now you say we're, we're back to those levels. Can, can you... Uh, attribute any of that to rising interest rates, then, then they're falling again, uh, strong economic growth, and then it's sort of tapering out? Or is it really not a, related to the, the macro environment? As a matter of like principle or theory, it should be the case that higher interest rates, well, it's, it's complicated because value firms tend to carry more debt, higher interest rates tend to be bad for companies that have lots of debt. But then there's also the the idea that the discount, you know, they're already discounted. And so when you, they're, they're like shorter duration bonds and they're not as sensitive to interest rate moves as the long duration bonds, which would be the, the growthiest stocks that have got all got the cash flows backhanded. And so when you move the interest rates around, it should impact the value firms less and they should perhaps be beneficiaries of slightly higher interest rates. So you've got, there's two things acting in tension there. Having said that, I don't buy companies that are particularly heavily indebted. So they, if anything, they tend to be net cash 
And so they should be beneficiaries of higher interest rates at a business level, and that should also benefit them at a valuation level. So they should do better. You know, lots of people have taken a look at it. I know that Rob Arnott at Research Affiliates has looked at it. Cliff Asness at AQR has looked at it, or his colleagues have looked at it. Nobody can find a statistically significant relationship. But as a matter of principle, you would say, well, if I've got a choice between, you know, if the 10 years at 6% and the Microsoft's got a 3% free cash flow yield, then it's a, that's a more difficult analysis to make. You might not, you might say, well, Microsoft's got a double from here to get to, for me to earn the same free cash flow yield as the 10 year that I can get right now. Money, that, that, that front end cash is, is pretty attractive to, to, to me, to value investors. It's, it's a, it's a, there's so many moving pieces in it. It's hard to sort of draw any conclusion. And, and as, uh, AQR and Cliff Asness and his colleagues looked at the slope of the yield curve, um, different rates, what, you know, long rates, short rates, w they were unable to find any statistically significant relationship. I know that Rob Arnott has said the same. It's, it's, it's very, very hard. And, and you know, Buffett's got this great discussion. He's written this uh, in one of his notes. He contrasted these two 17-year periods, one where interest rates were falling and one where interest rates were rising. And the stock market performs very, very well when interest rates were, were, were falling and it doesn't do as well when interest rates are rising. So that would sort of intuitively, that makes sense to me that that would be the case, that it's always, you always have this uh, opportunity cost. You have other places that you can put your money. And if you can, if you can get 15%, you know, in the, 1981 or so, you could get 15% on a 10-year. There just aren't very many businesses that earn more than 15% returns on invested capital, and particularly not backed by the US government. So you, it was hard to say no to the 15% 10-year at the time. There weren't very many better businesses. Now, at 1.5%, I mean, there are very few businesses that, you know, good, reasonable businesses. There's lots of stuff that doesn't earn any money at all, but businesses that have been around for a while, they all earn more than 1.5% on their assets, so, you know, you, do you want a coal miner that earns 4% on its assets with a 10 year at 1.5%? Like it should trade at a premium. Is that, does that make sense? Not really. Tobias, there are a lot of different metrics people use to, to evaluate value. There's price to book, price to earnings, price to sales. Uh, you were a pioneer of something called the acquirer's multiple, which is enterprise value to operating income why did you choose that one in particular? Why do you think it has greater efficacy? And then when you're doing your screens, what are the other uh, metrics that you're, you're using your screen where it says, oh, it's got a high acquirer's multiple, but it's got this bad XYZ, so we're not gonna have it. The multiple is just how much you're paying for the operating cash flow coming into the business or the operating earnings coming into the business. When we tested it in Quantitative Value, which is a book that uh, I co-wrote that came out in 2012, the acquirer's multiple, which is EV EBIT or EV EBITDA or EV operating income doesn't really make enterprise value to, to, to those things. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the lower the multiple that you paid uh, as a cohort, the better the performance that you got as a cohort. So uh, that's, that's sort of why I favor it. It's a good metric. It's also the metric that private equity firms and, and um, buyout shops, um, activists use to identify undervalued companies because they can go into the, often these things trade at a at a low multiple because there's some problem with the transmission of the business's cash flow through to the shareholders so they've got an inappropriate capital structure or something else is going on they've, they've bought a whole lot of businesses that just aren't earning enough and they need to divest them. And so that's what activists have tended to do is come in and ask them to divest, you know, in forceful language, ask them to buy back some stock, you know, whatever the case may be, restructure the balance sheet. And that very simple form of um, activism generates very, very good returns because they're, they're typically, everybody in the market knows what's wrong with the business. Somebody just needs to go in and do something about it. Um, the, the There's no sort of magic to it. There's no reason why, that metric should be any better than any other. The other metrics, you know, there's a cycle to this thing. Price to book was the best one for all, was the favored one for a long time. Free cash flow to enterprise value should do pretty well. You know, price earnings. This is one of the, uh, one of the funny things that, um, that I see in the market is people, people don't like multiples, right? Because they say, 
Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a simplistic approach to, to valuation. I, I need to go and look at more of the inputs and, and create a, um, some sort of discounted cash flow valuation that looks at, let's look at the revenue growth, let's look at the margins, let's look at what falls down, how do we fund it, where does that all fall out, what's this thing worth? And that's, that, that, that's the appropriate way to do a valuation. I, I wouldn't dispute that. It's just, I think it's funny when, you know, they said that there's nothing in the multiples at all. With If you give me the price to earnings ratio of a company and the price to book, if you take the inverse of the price to earnings and the inverse of the price to book, you've got earnings on book, which return on equity. If you give me the dividend yield as well, I can now calculate the payout ratio and what is reinvested in the business. And I already have the return on equity. So reinvestment by um, the return on equity should give you the incremental growth. So you have dividend yield and incremental growth or active growth. Those two together, are your expected return, if that's sustainable, so that's the next question. You know, is this a cyclical business or is this something where that should be a pretty sustainable number? If you can, that you, you can then do a valuation, a very simple back of the envelope valuation and understand roughly what you're paying for a business and what you think it can, can generate. And then the analysis becomes what is, you know, what is the likelihood that it actually goes and does these things, which is probably where you're better off spending a lot of your time. But I think that the... The, the risk to people who pay for these pay these very high multiples is that the multiples compress. I wouldn't say a value investor should rely on multiples expanding, but you can you can look through and see what the engine room of the business is going to do, and that's really the way that I think about the valuation. And when you when you have good prospects that the engine room is going to deliver good returns and low multiples, I think you're protected on. On, on, that, on both sides of the, the valuation shouldn't fall further. And even if it does, it doesn't matter because if you're, if you're comfortable with the expected return that you can get where it is right now, the multiple doesn't matter because you're still earning those returns for whatever you've paid at that level. The market will eventually wake up, but it may take a very, very long, it can take three, five, or it turns out, you know, seven years, it takes a long time sometimes for the market to figure out. That doesn't necessarily mean you've got a value trap you know, it just means that the market hasn't quite figured it out. If you're, if the, if it's still compounding its value and it's still generating reasonable returns, it's still a good balance sheet, still generating cash flows. There's no reason to sell out as long as you're getting uh, a better return internally than you could get in any other prospect. You should probably still, still be in those things. The difficulty in this business is that, you know, there's a lot of competition in businesses. Nothing static. People are people want those excess returns. Adjacent businesses want those excess returns and they'll compete for them. When they compete for them, um, the prospects for the business look worse. Maybe the management team's not as good as advertised and people know things that, that are not obvious in the, uh, in the financial statements and the, the, the reporting that they do. But I, I, I think that the problem for value really at the moment it's just the, the, or the solution for, for value is just time and patience. I think that the, the returns are already embedded in, you know, the cake where it is right now. It, it's, it's, um, it's just a matter of, t of allowing where it is to work over a period of three or five years. I feel reasonably confident that three or five years in the future, value will have done very well. Um, I, I don't know what the rest of the market will do because there's a speculative element. The speculation can keep on going on for a very long period of time. They can get more expensive. Uh, I don't really worry about it too much. I just think in terms of the stuff that I'm buying, it should deliver a reasonable return for the amount of risk that we're taking. should deliver very good returns for the amount of risk that we're taking on here. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned a value trap. What are an example of value traps and how, how do you avoid them? I'll give the example of when I uh, first sort of got into studying investing, uh, I noticed the stock IBM, which had a very attractive price to earnings multiple of something like 14 uh, back in the day. And I actually didn't invest in, in IBM. And I was lucky because uh, if I did, I would have lost money. Uh, and if you count back in dividends, total return, I think I would have been pretty much flat. Meanwhile, the S&P has probably more than doubled uh, since then. So uh, what was the, what was the value trap trap there? And, and if you know you, you don't want to talk about IBM, can you give another example of of um, perhaps an example of a value trap uh, and how investors can avoid that and how they can you know by avoiding that they can focus on the ones that that uh, yield real value. Well, if anybody knows how to avoid value traps, they should 
drop me an email and let me know because I don't know how to do it. And I, I think that sometimes, so IBM is a is an excellent example, I think, of a company that has the way that we're determining that it is in fact a value trap is the fact that it hasn't performed as well as other alternatives that you could have put money into. But you didn't make that mistake by yourself. Of course, Warren Buffett had a big position in IBM. People can say, oh, he doesn't understand technology. Well, if that's the case, then how did he get Apple right? Because that's the, in my opinion, that Apple trade of his is the greatest trade ever because he put a material portion of Berkshire Hathaway's money, it could have been 40% of its cash flow. It was the biggest investment ever made, and it's tripled or more since he put it on. So if he doesn't know what he's doing, then he got very, very lucky with that one, and he took a gigantic swing at it. So I think that you could probably interpret from that that he does, in fact, know what he's doing, and, and he's a, still a pretty good investor. And he made that IBM mistake too. So I think what, what you're trying to do with value, often these things are, you know, it takes a little bit of arrogance or an outside of you to look at a position and say, yeah, the market's got this wrong. Everybody else in the market has got this wrong. I'm going to put this on because I am right. Like that's a ridiculous statement to make, right? You're, immediate, you're, you're making a ridiculous statement when you buy these things and expecting a return better than the market. All that we can say, the, the way that I approach it is, I'm going to put a basket of these positions on and I know that about half of them are going to be value traps. About half of them are going to be mistakes. It's just that the ones that work should work more because the market has made a mistake in the valuation. Or maybe they haven't made a mistake. Maybe it's just there's a cycle going on and they were at the bottom of a cycle and they're just uh, extrapolating that, that those falling returns on equity and those falling returns or that uh, slowing growth or whatever the case may be and saying this is... Um, this is not worth where it's trading. And so we're going to sell it and, and get out of this position. But when the market realizes that it's made a mistake, the re-rating is often very violent up in the other direction and it can persist if the underlying business is quite good. So you could have looked at, you know, there are growth traps too. You could look in the late, the late 1990s. Everybody thinks of it as like a dot-com bubble. And I know I was describing it earlier as a dot-com bubble, so I'm not alone in that. But really what happened was there were a lot of very good, very big businesses that got way too expensive. And I would include Microsoft and Walmart, GE, you know, take your pick. There's a long, long list of them. But let's talk about Microsoft because it's a great example. Microsoft just got too expensive in the dot-com 1.0. It was a dot-com 1.0 darling alongside these other businesses, Walmart, not really a dot-com business, but it got too expensive then too. It had the same, had the same problem where the underlying business was very, very good, continued to be very, very good, grew from 2000 to 2010 or 11, Microsoft. And um, the stock price went nowhere with plenty of volatility in between. And the reason was it was just too expensive. Uh, a business that got too expensive in the early 2000s or was too expensive in the late 1990s and then traded sideways from 2000 to 2010. And in the interim, it had it, it caught the 2000 drop and it caught the 2007, 8, 9 drop. And so by 2010, 11, lots of value guys were pitching it as, as a good prospect because it had an 11% free cash flow yield, as unbelievable as that is to, to say now. It had its first year of revenue dropping and Steve Barmer was the CEO. And so there were some concerns about Steve, and then he disappeared and it became Satya Nadella. He was an untried CEO and we didn't know what was going to happen, but it was an 11% free cash flow yield and a pretty steady earner and very high returns on equity. And so from 2011 to 2015, it did start picking up steam. And so from that period to today, it's had a spectacular run. But the reason that it had such a great run is because it started out with very high free cash flow yield. And then midway through, they change from a business where you had to go into a store and buy windows and office and so on to a you know software as a service re re recurring cash flow they've got the azure business they've um, bought back stock on occasion but over that period of time they've also and they've had and they've generated very good growth in terms of revenues and on a per share basis but they've also had enormous multiple expansion where now i think it looks more like the opportunity that it looked like in the late 1990s than the one in 2010. I still think it'll do reasonably well given where interest rates are. Interest rates are just too low um, 
relative to what you're paying for Microsoft. But if interest rates run up, which they do seem to have been doing, that's a much more difficult assessment. So was Microsoft a value trap in 2010 when you know they had all these things that looked like were wrong with it? It was a growth trap in 2000 when everything looked like it was going really well. That's just it's, that's that's why investing is so hard because it's in retrospect it all seems pretty simple, but in the moment it's hard to make the assessment of which is going to do really well. What's really important? It's hard to know. But I think that if you probabilistically, which is the way that I approach the problem, you know that as a cohort, low multiple stocks do do pretty well, and there are other other metrics like I use a quality kind of lots of quality. Are they buying back stock? Companies that buy back stock tend to do better than companies that issue lots of stock. Are they free cash flow generators? Companies that generate free cash flow tend to do better than companies that, that don't or have negative free cash flow. All of these things, I try to build them into the, the model so that I'm buying things that have all of these incremental, positive, probabilistic aspects on their side. And so over time, they should generate better returns, they should generate market-beating returns. It's just that over short periods of time, it's, it's all noise. Tobias, what are you most excited about uh, right now? Um, let, let's talk about uh, your deep value ETF, uh, ZIG. Um, you know, we, we don't have to talk about individual stocks. We, we can if you want to. But uh, what are the particular sectors or styles that you're finding uh, most attractive in this market? If um, you were to go to Morningstar and pull up Zig or my other fund, um, Deep, and so Deep is small and micro, Zig is mid cap and, and, and above. If you pull up either of those two funds and you compare them to the index or to the, to the category average, on every single metric, they are better and cheaper than the market. They're growing faster on earnings, cash flow, book value, and they're cheaper on earnings, cash flow, and book value, and they have a higher dividend yield than the category average or the index. If those things are important, and I don't know, it's you know, in the short term they're not important. It's a it's a momentum sentiment market, but over the long term those things are important. Those two funds should do better than the index and the category average by virtue of the fact that you know they are cheaper and better. So I, I think that, that um, that's, uh, that's the thing that I am most excited about. I think that if I was to find a, an individual company that had the characteristics of those funds, that would be very simple purchase candidate for me. And so the fact that I have to, that I can find a, a portfolio of them, that makes it, uh, that, that's, that's fantastic because it means that I don't have any individual stock risk well, I do have individual stock risk, but it's it's limited to the sizing for each one. It's but I'm not buying a single stock. It's across the entire portfolio. So, I think the prospects for value are exceptionally good here. And I can give I can give examples. So, what, there there are, Lockheed Martin is one that I hold in the fund. You know the 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 problem for Lockheed Martin is that anytime there's a change in um, the administration, there's always this concern that they're not going to spend as much. In, in terms of defence as the preceding administration. That's never been a problem historically. They've, every single president has spent more on defence than the preceding one, including the current one. He spent 2% more than the preceding one uh, and plans to. Lockheed Martin, um, it's a $90 billion company, $90 billion market cap, $100 billion uh, enterprise value, so it's a little bit net debt, like $68 billion in revenues and on a per share basis, I think it's about 330 bucks a share, generating about $18 in free cash flow, has bought back 17% of its market cap over the last decade. You know, so that just, I, I like the fact that they buy back when they get cheap. Um, I much prefer that to them issuing stock. They generate enormous amounts of free cash flow. They've got, they are the technology leaders when it comes to like, you know, take a, take a, Missile defense, space mission systems, they make the Sikorsky, they make the F-35. Any administration is going to need Lockheed Martin in the future. And I think you get mid-teen returns from here for holding Lockheed Martin. So I, I think that that's the sort of thing that I look for in the fund. They're low risk, 
um, low-risk balance sheet, low-risk business, reasonable valuation that should generate reasonable returns. The, the risk is always that it's, it's, a, it's a monopsony. It's got a single buyer, essentially. Uh, but, you know, I think that that buyer is creditworthy and I think that that buyer is um, likely to keep on spending into the, into the distant future. So that's a, that, that's, a, that's a reasonable example of what I look for in the fund. And I've got a whole lot of businesses that are like that. They're just safe, they're too cheap, and they are going to generate good returns into the future. Tobias, I'm glad you brought up the, the risk uh, to the Lockheed Martin in particular. It's that it's monopsy. They have one buyer, the, the U.S. government so that they're very sensitive to that. And that kind of makes the metaphor while you're talking a little bit of a strange metaphor came to my head of you're sort of going to the, the market and you're, you're buying uh, you know, a, a, a bag of 30 apples and you want them for the cheapest amount possible. And you found a, a bag of apples that is selling for $1 and that's good, but there has to be a reason that the apples are selling for so cheaply. And you, you might want apples that are you know, a little bit you know, shaped, a little bit weird, not as aesthetically pleasing, but they're just as nutritious. So the, the misshapenness of Lockheed Martin is the monopsony of the government. What are some of the other misshapenness uh, of, of you know, going through your portfolio in ZIG? And, uh, and how do you evaluate, oh, this is misshapen, but it's, and it's, the market is, uh, thinks it's a risk and it's not versus, oh, wow, this is actually, the market's right about this. This is a value trap. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good way of, that's a good way of thinking about it, that, that each individual um, name has this idiosyncratic risk attached to it. You know, like the, the I've got some, I've got a health insurer, I've got Humana in there as well. And Humana um, has a similar problem. It's essentially got, it, it's got government sort of suppliers that generate, uh, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of infrastructure that trend, tends towards trends towards uh, increasing insurance premiums, but then they've got cost problems on the other side. But you know, it's a fantastically managed business. If you can look at that over the last decade plus, they've grown revenues pretty consistently. They've got very good returns on invested capital. All of those businesses um, that that are in the portfolio are, are going to be that way. They tend to be net repurchases of of shares that generate lots of free cash flow that there are you know existential or metaphysical risks to every single position in there but those also exist for every single company out there that's just just the nature of business that it's competitive and your uh the, the attacker that's going to take you down is the one that you don't expect it's the one you don't see coming you know so who would have you know, who would have guessed that newspapers would be sunk by, by Google? That that doesn't sort of make intuitive sense that that's the case, but that's that tends to be the way that the way that goes. But I would much rather be paying um, a price that reflects that risk than a price that assumes that this thing is dominant and will continue to be dominant and remain dominant. You know, which I think a lot of the the, the assumption is for all of the tech stocks that, or the 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 very expensive speculative type stocks that they will become dominant in their industry. And there's, there's no evidence necessarily that they are going to do that. The incumbents don't want to go either. And if they can replicate it by, you know, so in the dot com one point the fact that you had a dot com, like you'd gone and registered the domain that made you a billion dollar company, you know, look in the, the automaker market is a great example. So Tesla, um, Tesla's now the grandfather, I guess, of EVs because there are lots of other. We've seen we've seen Nikola, you know, as, as funny as that was, it's still around, still got a huge valuation on it. Hey, hey by the way, uh, I saw Nikola had an announcement the other day that they were cutting the amount of cars uh, that they were going to deliver. They they promised investors that they would deliver a hundred, but they actually were only going to deliver fifty, and not not fifty thousand, but fifty trucks, not cars. Yeah. And I think Rivian's in the same spot, right? Rivian's hit the market at a hundred billion dollar market cap. Yeah, but Rivian is is gilded by Amazon, you know. Yeah, they they that's that seems to be it. That's that's a that's a that's an important part is to have a partner who owns a whole lot of equity who's got some plan to do something with you, and so you can they'll potentially buy a whole lot of Rivians down there. I don't want to be critical of Rivian. Like that's a, I think it's a cool truck. It's a cool idea. Like stick two different things on on the same skate. It's a great idea. They're really pretty car. Like if, if they're reasonably priced, I'd love to get one. I think they're a nice looking car, but I don't necessarily want to go and invest in them. And I, I, I kind of feel the same way about Tesla, even though Tesla uh, is a better business now. It is an actual real business, whereas the other ones aren't, but it's a real business um, 
the problem for Tesla is it's it's got that monster valuation on it. It's 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 one point two trillion dollars, or it's not quite now. It's come off that, but it was one point two trillion dollars, and I think it's like a trillion dollars of water. I think it's a two hundred billion dollar valuation. That's where I I do a valuation that I can get to like a hundred and fifty bucks against like a thousand dollar plus share price, and I'm using that's that's my most optimistic upside kind of estimate for what it's worth because it's still ultimately I, I say this ad nauseum and it keeps on proving me wrong but it's still ultimately a metal bender it's got low returns on assets it doesn't have great margins yeah better margins than, than ford and gm but still not good margins i you know that, that and I, I i don't understand why ford or gm don't just come out and say uh we're we're, we're now an ev maker we're spinning off our ev we're going to call it whatever some other some other name that grabs attention we're going to how hold about uh, 50 gme gm electric there we go. They take it from GameStop. <laughs> <laughs> the tick is gone. But yeah, it's a great, it's a great idea. You know, spin off half of it, rake in a whole lot of cash, hold the other half in shares, get get the valuation on that part. You know, well, I don't understand why they don't just do it. I think a few of them have kind of wised up and they're just announcing the fact that they're doing it. But it seems to me that there's an enormous amount of competition in that sector, and they're all pretty. They've all been around for a long time and they know how to compete. They know how to play in that business. And, and at some stage, they're going to figure it out. And you don't, I don't want to be paying massive multiples when there is that risk there, even though it does look like it's a pretty, you know, does, does look like a pretty dominant business at this point. Tesla seems to be growing pretty quickly, even though it's tiny. It is growing very quickly. Um, I, I, Tobias, I want to ask you, where do you see the biggest pockets of risk in this market? I take it you're, you're not very constructive on the growthiest growth sectors. You already named Tesla. Are there any particular sectors or style factors um, or, or other individual companies that you see that is going to go down by a lot, I think? And also, can you speak to what it's like to, to be bearish on some particular companies at a time where almost nothing is going down? Yeah, I, uh, I, have, I have been a short seller in the past and I have, I have you know, I, I, as, a, as a portfolio, they, they do... You know, I was sold pretty small and um, rebalanced pretty regularly. And so I was always more interested in the portfolio performance than any individual name. So I would just, you know, look for massive over, massive overvaluation to the extent that you can come up with a value. I mean, this, when I say overvaluation, for some of these companies, they have no business, they have no earnings, they have no revenue, they have, they have nothing there except for a very big promise to do something and a, and a market capitalization that assumes that they've already done it. And I, I find that that's not enough. Those sort of businesses can go up 30% a year. So you need to be looking for other things. So the best way to short is to look for statistical fraud, statistical earnings manipulation, um, statistical, uh, um, you know, financial distress, all of these sort of things. So companies that are forced to raise capital, companies that have to raise capital because they're burning cash and they've they don't have much cash, have this moment where they have to go to the market and, and get that money. I, that's a great catalyst um, typically for a re-rating in the stock. And so I try to sell ahead of those sort of, uh, ahead of those sort of things. What I have found though, is that they're really, the, the market is really stacked heavily against shorts. There's no rebate on the cash anymore, or you don't get enough of, an, of a rate on the cash you get these, um, you know, with that sort of social media, uh, like games, I, I, not that I would be short GameStop or AMC. I, GameStop was, was, a, was more likely to be a long in, in my portfolio. I didn't hold it, but GameStop is the kind of thing that I, I, I would more likely buy. But, uh, there's clearly this, uh, in this market, which is speculative the way that it is, they find this like, you know, remember when Hertz by virtue of the fact that it had a queue like that, that became like a speculative run up like that. It makes no sense, but that's, that's what, that's what's sort of happening in this market. So I think that, and there's some regulatory changes in the background as well, that are going to make it very, very hard to be a, very, very expensive to be a short seller. So I, I think it's a really tough business. I think if you need a signal that it's a great time to be a short seller with all of those things lined up against you, that's probably the signal, but I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. out of that business now. It's so, just, so, it's so too yeah. hard. Um, Tobias, uh, I've got a, my final question for you is you had a, a hilarious, um, tweet, which is of, uh, yourself as an old man via the face app. You say, no, a decade of value underperforming hasn't affected me at all. Why do you ask? So, um, 
my, my question is, you know, it's been a very rough business, uh, value investing. You, uh, Tobias, have, have fared remarkably well, uh, given that like the, the odds, the deck really has kind of been stacked against value investing. So uh, my question is, what would have to happen for you to sort of, this is, I don't mean uh, any offense by this question, but for you to sort of hang your hat up and say, you know what, I had a thesis, but I was wrong and I'm going to buy uh, I'm going to buy Tesla now. I'm going to buy the Kathy Wood stocks, all the growth stocks. Or is, is there anything in this universe that could happen? Are there any parallel universes, parallel metaverses where that could happen? Or is that just you don't have that within you? I'm an evidence-based investor. I look at financial statements and I look at I'm – a, I'm a quantitative – I have a quantitative approach to it. So I could easily buy Tesla. You know, if it trades down to 50 bucks, there's a chance that it shows up in the portfolio. I'm not, I'm not against it. Um, I probably not because it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy some other criteria, but, but that's, that's, that's the truth. Like I think that what will happen is there will be at some stage, there will be a bust. That's no, that's no, I'm not making a prognostication. They're just, their busts do tend to follow booms. That's just what happens in the bust. Lots of good businesses will get thrown out with the bathwater and I will go through and I'll pick those things up. You know, uh, it, the, the, the challenge for investors like me is to pay up for growth is to, but I, I sort of, I, I have this mechanical approach to growth where I say the business has to be able to fund that growth itself. It has to be able to, and then that growth has to be worthwhile, which has to have a certain return on equity. So, um, I would, I will always struggle in a market like this. It's just, it, it's just, I, I'm, you know, constitutionally incapable of, of behaving in a different way. Because I have, uh, what, even if my logic is wrong, the logic that I have is the logic that I have. So it's unlikely that I that I will do that. Having said that, you know there are some interesting. There is some interesting research by different guys, like the Bessembinder. Yep. I, I think I might be pronouncing that correctly, but he has a study where he's looked at the sort of what the criteria that lead to to good growth, and then there are other studies out there. Um, there's a G score. Uh, which looks at which is the growth score where they look at the the first cut is literally let's look at the most expensive companies and then let's use something like the Piotrowski F score to to pass that universe into longs and shorts and that has traditionally generated a lot of its returns from the short side being short junk that is too expensive but more recently it has generated returns from the long side so that would be for me to become a growthy style investor that would be it would still have some sort of research background to it. But I, I, I read those studies and I try to build those into my own process because if, if it is in, in fact the case that the market is evolving all the time, which is, which is true, and those companies are the ones that are going to attract attention because the market is now getting smarter about the fact that something could be losing money for a very long period of time, but it just it's going to get to that escape velocity where it can't reinvest as much in the business. Mm. It's going to it's going to yield more out of the business. It might be the case that we have to get a little bit smarter about that sort of stuff. I still think that it's a, a little bit s more of a cyclical phenomenon than a secular phenomenon. But I, you know, I, I want to be as Bayesian about this stuff as I can. Any new research, we're going to look at it and we're going to fold it into our current process, or, or examine it independently and see if it's worthwhile and fold it into the process if it is. So we're always going to evolve. I don't think we'll be static. The portfolio will look different in the future and it'll have a different sort of driver to it. But ultimately the, the way that I think about it is I still want, it still has to sort of show what it can do, demonstrate it through the financial statements rather than through management's discussion. You know, I, I'm less interested in what management has to say about what the future is going to look like in that business and more interested in what they're able to do in the existing business. And so that's that's the the bias that I have and the limitation that I have that may prevent me from from ever performing in this market. <laughs> yeah, well, well, um, Tobias, uh, it's been great having you on. Could you just briefly uh, summarize your views, your thesis on value growth, how you defined it, and what you see going forward in the future? Yeah. So the 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 distinction that I make is is the distinction that the academics make between it's like a, a multiple basis where. Um, the most expensive stocks are the growth stocks, and the the reason that they um, are 
considered growth stocks is because if we assume that it's an efficient market and everything is there, there are no sort of arbitrage opportunities anywhere if things are very expensive the market is saying that they expect very high rates of growth out of them and if things are cheap the market is saying the, the implication is that there'll be low rates of growth historically the lower multiple stocks have generated better returns there have been multiple periods where the boom favors the growth stocks and then it goes back to the the long run average of sort of tending to favor the the value stocks which are the out of favor stocks i think that the opportunity set now in value is exceptionally good because it is cheap and the businesses that make up that part of the market are now tending to be better businesses that generate lots of cash flow and the reason that they're thrown out is because they're not the very high growth stocks uh they just they may they may fall down on that growth basis. But having said that, the portfolio that I currently hold does have higher rates of growth on every metric and it is cheaper on every metric. So I think that the prospects for value over the next three to five years, even without a multiple re-rating, even without the market waking up to it, I think it will just generate very good returns. Brilliant. Uh, well, Tobias, thanks so much. It's been great having you on. Thank you, everyone, for watching. You can find um, Tobias uh, at the Acquires Multiple, uh, his website. Uh, his The tickers for his ETFs of the Acquires Funds are ZIG and DEEP. And of course, you can find him on Twitter at GreenbackD. Uh, Tobias, thanks so much. Thanks, Jack. This is really fun. Yeah, always. Should have you back soon. <laughs>